0: Hi, this is Julie. This is Liz. This is Sheila. This is Monica. This is Leanne. We are the Satellite Sisters. You are listening to Satellite Sisters To Go.
1: You are listening to Satellite Sisters. It's the Tuesday show. I'm Leanne Dolan in Pasadena, California. My sister, Julie Dolan, is in Steamboat Springs,
0: Colorado.
1: Julie, happy Bastille Day.
0: <laughs> I know, Leanne. I know, Leanne. Happy Bastille Day to you, too. Day. I started off with... I, I made an egregious error, Leon. I started off with an English muffin. This oh. What was I thinking? Okay, and, and it served me right. It was the worst English muffin <laughs> I've ever had. I just it was one of those product extensions. It's the cinnamon vanilla English Thomas's oh. English muffins. I fell pour for it. those too.
1: It's like, it. It. it's like eating soap, isn't it? Ugh. Yeah, I mean it, was-
0: it is what our sister Monica, one of the lab rats, calls the aftertaste from this A horrible English muffin. I might just have to go buy myself a croissant to just... (laughs) Cleanse the palate, Leon. But happy Bastille Day to you. Merci. Merci. All right. We, we really actually
1: have quite a show. Uh, we have a crime report. We're going to talk about Ghost at a Watchman. That's coming out today. Maybe you're reading it right now. Uh, Pluto, of course, a big, big day for our favorite planet or demi-planet, Pluto. Um, I read a fascinating story in Sports Illustrated about teen athletes and heroin addiction, which sounds like two things that don't go together, but shockingly, they do. We have some book recommendations. And then, of course, we have Pole, Dark, and Handsome.
0: So satisfyingly in this episode. Just one to savor. It really (laughs) really is. Really. Yeah, it's
1: definitely a multiple watch episode. That's what Mm -hmm. I'd say about this one. Mm -hmm. So, um, but first on Saturday, we announced a couple of dates over the weekend for our upcoming book tour for You're the Best, a celebration of friendship. And I wanted to explain a few things to people. We are going to be in Brooklyn, New York, Thursday, October 29th at a great bookstore space called Powerhouse. Very excited about that. It will be a bunch of the Satellite Sisters and a bunch of the next generation who have contributed to this book, our nieces, our daughters, our daughters-in-law. They will be joining us in Brooklyn for a big kickoff event just after the book is published. And then we are having a weekend event in Pasadena on Sunday, November 8th. At noon at Vroman's bookstore, lots of room to accommodate people. That will be Liz, Sheila, and I currently. And uh, so those are the two set events that we have. Here's here's just the truth, people. We were so happy to announce that people were posting: Are you coming to Orlando? Are you coming here? Are you coming there? Book touring is very expensive, and we honestly just don't have the budget to fly all over the country to appear in bookstores. It's not lack of desire, is it, Julie? No, we go of anywhere, talk yeah. to
0: anyone. Uh, we are happy and excited to share this book with everyone, but that reality sets in, Liam. Yeah, it, it is. So uh,
1: that's just the truth. We The days of the million-dollar book tours are over for every author, and especially when you're five authors. Um <laughs> so so here's the thing though if you have an organization if you have a company that flies in speakers maybe you're on the organizing committee of a local book event where you are and there's some portion or the travel is paid for you know that we can try to work with certainly not all five sisters people have real work schedule issues and things like that but you know we would come to you but we can't Uh, pay to come to you. It's just a simple answer there. But if you work for somebody, if you have an organization, as I said, if you're on a committee and you want to bring us in, some of us, one of us, two of us, fantastic. Like We'd be happy to work with that. But I cannot promise a 10-city tour. I liked when... Someone said, are you coming back to Cape Cod? And I think the short answer is no. Uh... (laughs) I would love to go back to Cape Cod. Not like we didn't want to, but we were there for a family wedding. So five of us flying planes, trains, automobiles, ferries to Cape Cod. That is unlikely. So if you wanted to be sure to catch us on the road... Brooklyn and Pasadena are the two big events. Other events, should they come up that, and are open to the public, we will let you know about. Um, but I just wanted to make that clear. But put it out there. We're open, we're open to suggestions and we're open to your ideas. We will be doing Skype book clubs when that becomes appropriate. We'll let you know about that. But um, that's just the reality. So, uh, and I know a couple of people had posted like, hey, this bookstore, invite the Satellite Sisters. Here's another Bookstores don't have any money either. So (laughs) that's just they don't pay for authors to show up. So that's just that's just the truth. But that's why we're going to really try to do some special things in Brooklyn and in Pasadena. If you're thinking about um, maybe coming to Pasadena, considering it, I'm actually working with a local hotel this week to try to work out a special room rate. And maybe we'll have a special event this Saturday night before the Sunday book signing. So I just want to put that bee in your bonnet. I'm not a travel agent, but uh, I am. (laughs) I just wanted. I'm working on that. So if you think maybe, you and your satellite sister would enjoy a weekend in southern california you you can dray your driving we're going to work on uh, this week on some special room rates and we'll have all that information
0: but well, good work, um, Leon, and thanks for setting us straight same is true in brooklyn I, I urban nana had really i've sung the praises of Brooklyn, and many people come to New York and never see Brooklyn plan a nice weekend and that way you can come visit uh, the satellite sisters uh, on at the powerhouse, which I think is going to be super fun
1: yeah so that 's a Thursday night and then this the uh, Pasadena event is a Sunday afternoon mm-hmm. so that's just uh, the reality it, it it pains me when I read things like, come to here and i'm like we would love to come there, so there's just some realities that we are facing but that doesn't mean it's impossible so <laughs> our email the best way to reach us if you have an organization or you're you know and you have interest we have a speaker's page on our website at satellitesisters.com with the information we'll need uh and that that email is info at but first go to the speaker's page and read about um you know the information we'll need before we can commit to anything and then um send us an email at info@satellitesisters.com. at All right, um, Julie, though you had a big birthday- what, I did. Yeah, I did, did you did. make that kale cake that was on the Facebook page? It looks <laughs> that was so
0: thoughtful, so th- thoughtful, knowing of my great love of kale to have a nice green birthday cake. No, I did not. Lee and I had a delicious strawberry rhubarb pie with 19 candles uh, uh, in the pie, which is quite a lot for a piece of pie, for a pie. <laughs> and uh, that was very successful. I absolutely loved all the comments, the wishes uh, that people posted at Facebook Thank you so much. I mean, you know, it's it's a little thing, but it makes it for a very exciting day to see all those messages. I, God, it's I mean, True. I, I really, I love it. I love it. So that was good. Uh, the big plan, of course, was to go uh, floating in an inner tube down the Yampa River here in Steamboat. And we had with, you know, Camp Nana's going on here, and we had... The six- and the eight-year-old were totally psyched. We had our float clothes on, you know, the special – we shoes and T-shirts. We headed down to the river, and there was a giant sign, Leanne, uh, at the inner tube rental. You had to be 10 and up oh, to float down the river. That makes sense. Uh, it was – no, it's only because the river is high and fast yeah. right now but it was oh, devastating so, it was devastating oh. to an 8-year-old and a 6-year-old to see 10 and up you remember those days when yes. you're not tall enough to get on an amusement ride yeah so we we consoled ourselves with putt-put golf League, mm-hmm. and, and we had a fabulous <laughs> birthday so that was it but the river is going to go down, Leon. That's the lesson. Uh, that's the big nature lesson at uh, Nana Camp. The river does, it rises and it falls, uh, and there will be a float day coming up. And no, no follow-up questions. <laughs> right. Don't ask me about the cubic feet. <laughs> Don't ask me about
1: that. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I had, uh, this weekend, I had some college friends in. You know, this is the year when many people are turning 50 that I know who I graduated from college with. And so I was sort of i I'm like an adjunct friend to this group of college friends. And What, do, uh, what does that mean, Leanne? You adjunct know what, friends. that they had their, their own group, but that I was friends with a couple of them individually. And I went to a small school. You know, there were only... 300 people in my class at Pomona. So you really knew everybody anyway. So I was happy to be included in some of their activities. This was a group primarily of swimmers and soccer players. And I, as a lacrosse player, I was happy to be invited. And as uh, someone with broad shoulders, I love hanging out with swimmers. You know, they just...
0: You and the Butterflyers, that's yes.
1: it? <laughs> I mean, some of these women still only this year did, were their records broken uh, at the collegiate level. These were national record holders. This particular group of swimmers, we actually had a very good Division three swim team at Pomona. So uh, I was happy to be included in this. And so we had um, – Julie, I was thinking of – you wrote a great piece for our book, You're the best. It's about <clears> – <throat> Excuse me. It's about the girls' weekends that you've been doing for so many years, and you did a guide. And you'll you'll see that when it comes out in October. Some really sort of unexpected great suggestions about how to have a girls' weekend. But one of your number one rules is no restaurants. Like, just... Don't go to restaurants because it becomes too complicated and everyone's too opinionated. And right. so I took that to heart. There was a subset of this group in Thursday night. And I said, they said, let's go out to dinner. I said, just come to my house. I got the meal. I got the salmon. I got the chickpea salad. I got the cucumber salad now that's in regular rotation at my house.
0: Julie, I even had a hot hors
1: d'oeuvre. I had a you hot did? hors d'oeuvre. Yes, yeah, <laughs> on you.
0: <laughs> I am telling you when you go to Lee and Dolan's house on a weeknight it's you get you get a hot meal multiple sides and so and so special occasions a hot or durfully and what did you serve I served well it was uh, uh, it was from Trader Joe's I never
1: buy their pre-made stuff usually but it was like a greek uh, feta spanakopita thing it was like a you cheesy be- hot greek thing it was good right cuz mm-hmm. here's the other lesson I learned this weekend women love cheese because then <laughs> Then my friend showed up and they had brought stuff for a cheese plate. And they said, Well, you can serve it for dessert. And I was like, Well, how continental is that? So we had cheese as a first course and then cheese as dessert. (laughs) <laughs> you girls, you're so European. That's the, very nice. And then the next night, uh, Kristen, who was hosting everybody at their house, nothing fancy. She, they were all just like sleeping on the floor and <laughs> air mattresses at, at Kristen's house, which is near mine. Um, she, Her boyfriend had put together like a surprise wine tasting. So it was official wine tasting with the sommelier. And then another giant cheese platter, like the biggest <laughs> cheese platter
0: I have ever seen. I mean, so so what is this? This this is the secret thing that women, when they sneak away together, yeah. it's not to go to spas. It's just to eat cheese. Eat cheese. That's it? We I, we have we deprive ourselves of cheese year round, but when we get
1: together, it's a cheese fest. Is that fair, it? It must be. I mean, I've never seen so much cheese in like a forty-eight hour period. It or was, is it
0: that you're drinking so much wine, you need the, the cheese
1: to cut the no, wine? No, it wasn't even that. You know, okay. I mean, it's okay. the wine tasting. You're only getting a bit. I mean, this yeah. was just an extraordinary ordinary cheese platter and we're full of cheeses that I'm never brave enough to buy you know like Saint Andre and things like that I don't know how to serve that kind of cheese
0: (laughs) very nice (laughs) for Bastille Day to have a little French pronunciation (laughs) in there thank you
1: but it was really fun and then after the wine tasting and the cheese then we did I think what people do now we all got on Facebook and looked up ex-boyfriends so that was fun too (laughs) cute (laughs) it? <laughs> that, yeah, that's what our generation does <laughs> really pretty much your friends of friends you can find them oh they're out there you know now we're all connected like oh let's see what he, what he's up to these days
0: <laughs> so that was pretty funny now did you take the next step and actually contact the no, ex no, no 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 just no, okay you no. you showed restraint no yeah okay. no, you, no, you showed no. some
1: okay okay <laughs> No one in this group was available. Let's just put it that way. No one in this group was available for that. So uh, yeah, so that but it it was it was really fun. It was excellent. So I don't know. Maybe in the version two of our book, just add more cheese to the girls' weekend.
0: I did not. That was not one of my helpful (laughs) suggestions, (laughs) Leanne. But uh, I think it's a word of uh, wisdom for that everyone as they're planning their women's weekends. There are a lot that happen in the fall you know, just uh pile on the cheese. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's a meal. Um, all right.
1: The really big news of the day today is this Pluto flyby. Okay. I, I don't know if you've been following along, Julie, but there is
0: because you talk about Pluto and because now Pluto moons is part of my, you know, <laughs> I have con. added it to my day, uh, daily uh, expressions, <laughs> Lee, you know, that there's Definitely a Pluto moon situation most days, right?
1: (laughs) Fundamentally unstable. That's what it means. So, okay, here's the deal. They, nine years ago, this team of scientists sent this probe out into the world, uh, New Horizon, which I have to say is a bad name. But other than that, it's... (laughs)
0: They didn't talk to Liz about Brandon. okay, no, like, that they could have come up with, did you have something snappier? Yeah, know, that that's you? just, that
1: sounds like a rehab facility to me, but other than that, I mean, I understand it's like mapping the entire universe or galaxy or whatever, yeah. fine, but New Horizon, just, it's too vague. But, uh, so I, I, you know, I would have gone with like Pluto Palooza or something, but, <laughs> um, they launched this probe in 2006 and it, Julie, it's the fastest man-made object ever. It goes
0: 30,000 miles per hour. Okay, That's, Just to think about that is a pretty amazing thing. Later. It
1: goes a million miles a day. A million Ooh. miles a day. Okay. <laughs> That's a I thing. feel that
0: way at Camp Nana. <laughs> I'm go- I am going close to a million miles a day, but, uh, but, but I, I can't keep up with the new horizon. And
1: nine years later, it has traveled its 3 billion 3 billion miles to get to Pluto, the dwarf planet, who many people love. I'm not the only Plutophile. There are many of us out there. There's something very sweet about Pluto. And it's I think in no small part due to the Walt Disney dog. But um, so but this this probe has done this complete recon of the solar system. It's about as big as a grand piano. And this morning at about 4 a.m. my time, uh, 7 a.m. Eastern, it flew as close as it was going to get to Pluto. And uh-huh. it's going to make a two our loop around Pluto just data 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 taking photos and absorbing data and it's going to give us the first and best look ever at you know what Pluto is really made of but here's the exciting part then it takes it starts to beam back the information and uh, I don't know if beam is actually the technical <laughs> term
0: <laughs> Liam, you, you are, our uh, you are our space sister. So if you say beam, uh, that's fine. I know that one time we interviewed Sally Ride, and you asked her about going up in her rocket ship. <laughs> it's did. one of my favorite satellite sister moments. Um, so if you call it beam, uh, that's fine with me. Thank you, Jill. Um,
1: All right. So it takes so, I mean, it's the data is traveling at the speed of light, but it still takes about four and a half hours to get to the earth. So it's about six o'clock Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern time that they're going to have a phone home with New Horizon. That's what they call it. New Horizon phones home. Uh, It's like the guys at Johns Hopkins pick up the phone and go, oh, it's Pluto calling, you know, and then all the data starts (laughs) coming in. So uh, and then the data is just going to keep coming. The first photos will be out tomorrow morning, according to the NASA website and according to Satellite Sisters listener, uh, Leslie Maxfield, who actually works at Caltech and knows a lot about this stuff. She's on it for us. Um, But it's incredible. Like the guy who's been running this project, Alan Stern, the project manager, 26 years he's been working on this. I mean, it, literally his whole career. So imagine how excited he was this morning when it flew by, closest it was ever going to get. And when it connects, when, when it Pluto phones home, it's going to be fantastic, I, isn't I, it? Well, I hope it all
0: works. I mean, you know, it must be just uh, the anxiety level that, like, uh, you know, is, are the pictures really going to come through? Are we really going to see any of this data? I mean, that. I mean, that's amazing. So uh, I'm sure the anticipation is very high. I know it is here at Satellite Systems. Right? <laughs> well, and I'm, really, I'm excitedly, and you, you've turned me on to Pluto. Yeah. You know? I mean, I know it's the maverick planet, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, we, I, we all felt really badly when it got demoted, uh, but I think we're part of the believers that Pluto, you know, is really important, and uh, they do believe, I mean, that it's going to provide just valuable information about about the solar system and about how what we're doing here on earth too. I mean I mean that's I think the big part. I mean I I saw an editorial that said, you know, that Maybe we'll learn how we won't go extinct if we, you know, if we can use, which would be a good thing. <laughs> it's right? a good I'm thing. I'm the oldest sister, so I, just, I don't really <laughs> have to worry about it. But you might, land, so. Uh.
1: No, so, and I also want to alert people tonight on the National Geographic channel, uh, check your local listings. But they have been running a series about this Pluto New Horizons mission. So they're going to introduce you to the whole team and everything tonight. So if you want to see behind-the-scenes stuff, check out the National Geographic channel tonight um that is on but it's exciting to me and you know when these people work on it for so long a fast company actually had a good article on the pluto team about how do you actually design a mission that is so far out in the future and how do you people work on it for a few years and then move on to other research but you need to keep connected and i'll just post that at satellitesisters.com because for any business when you're like looking at your five year plan, your ten year plan, your twenty year plan, there's something to learn about this. They first they produced what's called a longevity document, Ooh. and uh and Do we then have
0: one of those that settles. That's
1: exactly what I'm saying, Julie. Wait, what? <laughs> then they then they figured out the contingency plan, and they actually listed like 249 things that could go wrong, and here's are the solutions. Here are the solutions to that. And then they just had a simple. We don't even have this. They just kept a simple con contact list, Julie.
0: <laughs> I know. I, if know. I ask you right now, do you know my home address? It's a re- no, is a
1: reason you didn't get a birthday card. I don't know what the home address is in Steamboat. Oh. And neither does Liz. And honestly, I don't know Liz's home
0: address either. <laughs> <laughs> so we could start there, Land. You know, a journey. Know. It's 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 one small step. That's a, that's the start. Okay. Uh-oh. All right. Let's... Get a contact list. All right. right. There you go. All right. Well, that is exciting, Lynn. I I mean, and I think the Pluto news actually eclipsed the other big news that that came out this week, which of course is the publication of Harper Lee's. New old book called "Go Set a watchman right i mean this is i mean this is really sort of literary history that this book is co- uh, um, coming out now we 've been talking about it since February, yes, remember we yes. mentioned this, and it has just come out I think today is the public date, and maybe you 've seen some of the the early reviews of of the book then this is I guess you'd call it, it's the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, the story of To Kill a Mockingbird is Harper Lee brought Ghost Set a Watchman, or, pre, or most of Ghost Set a Watchman, to an editor. And the editor said, you know, it might be better to tell the story from, uh, you know, 20 years earlier, from when Scout uh, the young, is a young girl rather than as a grown woman. Um, And so Harper Lee went back and rewrote what is, you know, an American classic. It is a beloved book. It was a terrific movie. Um, But then uh, this manuscript has appeared um, uh, and that goes back. And I want to talk about the discovery of the manuscript but the reviews of this book, Leon, have you have you read any online yet? Or I did. I read the New York Times, and then
1: I heard uh, George Stephanopoulos read a copy, so he gave like a thumbnail review of it, and he he said it was a very compelling. He said he found the father daughter relationship between Atticus and Scout, although she now goes by her grown up name in the book, uh, very compelling. He said okay. it was a very readable book. That's what he said. But-
0: but uh, other people have written that it's, it's really a very, you know, it's very dark that yes. it is the story of Scout comes back to, uh, she returns to Maycomb, um, uh from New York uh, to, to really realize that her father is a racist and that her boyfriend is a racist and that, you know, it's very distressing to see um, the evil views of her parents I mean, and, and you know, so much of To Kill a Mockingbird is about the loss of innocence. Um, and when I read these reviews, I felt the same way about Ghosts Set a Watchman. It is sort of a loss of innocence about a beloved book and a wonderful movie starring Gregory Peck. That uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that movie is wonderful. It is. It's fantastic. No, I know. Yeah. I know. And, it and, is. and, you know, it is and it's so it's in some ways it's very shocking. I mean, I don't know what I expected this new manuscript to be about or that, uh, that it would, you know, portray, um, Atticus, uh, the lead character in such a different, in a different fashion, but, you know, in the, you know, goes in, in To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, he is the one that is humble, is noble. He's, you know, he's fighting, he's fighting for the rights of a black man, you know, uh, and, in this second book, goes at a Watchman, you know, it's sort of turned upside down. I mean, it's really the, you know, the portrait of Att- Atticus Finch is really upended. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think it, well, it's amazing. upsetting
1: to a lot of people. I mean, yes. you know, yeah. he's a great literary hero. So yes. for many, many people, he's their favorite character in all of literature. You know, it's a book that's read in almost every single public school and private school in this country. Oh, it's, you know, one of the few books we really have as a nation that almost everyone reads as they grow up. So you just, you can't avoid reading, reading it. And so well, you wouldn't
0: want to. Avoid right. No, it. I, I mean, just, that's, right. So, so it, that's why this upsetting. is so upsetting And so, but the backstory of how this manuscript came to be, uh, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, um, there was an article, an editorial by, um, the, uh, the literary agent, uh, Tanya Carter, who is responsible for finding the manuscript. And the headline, Lynn, is, uh, Or my interpretation is it's still very suspicious how Tanya Carter came to, uh, who is the trustee of the estate of Harper Lee. And Harper Lee is 89. But how this manuscript uh, came to be found and then how it came to be published. And she was trying, Tanya Carter, the attorney, was trying to set the record straight about how she alone was able to go into this safe deposit box Um, and find this manuscript. In the same safe deposit box that, like, um, in 2011, Sam Pincus, who was the literary agent for Harper Lee, and Mr. Caldwell, who was an appraiser, because they were trying to examine and appraise the original manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird, and how in this one safe deposit box, These two men who spent over an hour examining all the documents in there sort of failed to see this other manuscript go set a watchman. And then so lo and behold, Tanya Carter, the attorney, some, you know, three years later, hears from the family members that there is a second novel and she just goes back to the safe deposit box and oh guess what she finds the manuscript leon goes there the to whole thing is very
1: suspicious
0: so I, and I that's the
1: worst part i mean that's why i'm torn about whether to read the book or not i, I just i just don't feel i don't feel right about reading this book
0: yeah I, I well i'm not yeah i would say i'm not there yet i i mean i understand I can understand and appreciate sort of the historic significance of this. Yeah. But, it, but all the circumstances and even the fact that uh, Miss Carter did not use um, Sam Pincus, the literary agent. She went and used Miss Lee's foreign markets agent to bring this book out. So I, there's just I have a lot of questions uh, about was this really what Miss you know Harper Lee wanted? Uh, where was this manuscript? Who, you know, how did it? How is it possible that, you know, a literary agent and, you know, a literary appraiser somehow missed, you know, th- this document in a safe deposit box? How big could that safe deposit <laughs> box be, Liam? you know? Well, on the one
1: hand, as a writer and an author, I'm happy that people are pouring into bookstores to buy books, okay, and that the whole okay. nation is talking about a book. On the other hand, you know, here's what happens – I don't remember things I wrote in my first novel. Like, my guess is if Harper Lee claims she, you know, everyone's, oh, her friends say she really wanted it to come out, she probably doesn't recall that manuscript at all. It's 60 years old. Mm -hmm. And you can't, especially if it was like a first or second draft. And the New York Times yesterday had a good piece about her original editor and how important he was in shaping To Kill a Mockingbird and taking the elements of that manuscript, Watchmen, and making Making it into Mockingbird. So, when you are a novelist and you write draft after draft after draft, you can't remember what's in stuff. And then she never wrote another book. So, that's not really her issue in terms of forgetting and moving on to the next story. But when people ask me about questions about what's in Helen of Pasadena, I forget that I wrote it. Like, I forget the, de- the details. So, I imagine an 89 year old Harper Lee going, I have another book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's bring it out. I, I just yeah. I, like. Yeah, I mean, who's? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I would like
0: to know how you know Harper Lee is benefiting from this. Right. I hope she is, and you know, and her family. But how this trustee is benefiting right. from it, and why? Well, mainly it's, the
1: publishers, I believe, yeah. are benefiting. Yeah. yeah, I and so and I, you know, I I I think uh, I think ultimately her legacy. The book is being well enough um, received in terms of um, the reviews and stuff that I don't think her legacy as a writer will be trashed by Atticus Finch's legacy as a character maybe, which is unfortunate. Um, But I was worried before the book came out that it was just going to be awful. You know, uh, there
0: was many of the reviews say that there are some very lovely passages. Right. And that, you know, that the sort of lyrical style that you saw in To Kill a Mockingbird is definitely present in this book. Um, It's interesting here in Steamboat Springs, they have a tradition of picking a book for the community uh, and they pick one one book and they ask everybody, everyone in the community to read it. They have already gone ahead to um, pick uh, go set a Watchmen as their community book for this coming year, okay. which okay. I mean I, I I'm sure it will lead to many discussions like this, Liam. Right? I, I'm I'm with you. I I am not. I'm not, like, running out to the bookstore or running to Amazon to order a copy of this. I think Right. And
1: remember, it was her sister that was her lawyer and agent for 60 years and kept that book under wraps. And really, whose main job seemed to be to be protecting her legacy. So it is the whole circumstance is very, very suspicious. And someone stands to make a – and I would also say my guess is that, you know, Harper Lee makes probably still a lot of money from To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, it's – it's every single American school kid reads that book. So right, it's right. been, it's not like she was doing it for the money. So I, I, I'm going to reserve judgment. I, I may or may not read it. I'm not going to rush to the bookstore to read it. And I'll see only cause I, I just, I feel, I feel like something about this is still fishy, still fishy. Mm-hmm. Still fishy, Joel.
0: Okay, Leanne. Uh, that's. Uh, I'm with you on that one. We okay, agree.
1: but I do have a couple of books that I have been reading. You know, I'm trying desperately. Well, I'm doing all these author interviews, which is fun, and I which are
0: great people. Thank and if, you. Please listen to it. Leanne's. You're very good at this, Leanne. I have to, I just... Okay. Thank you. Um, well, every
1: writer has a different process and that's, what's fascinating. Like there's not just one way to write a book. And I, people think I get asked these questions all the time about my process. So it's fun to ask other writers that, but it's also really interesting for me to hear about how they put stuff together and all the books we've read are very different. So two books I happened to read over the last week, um, that I wanted to recommend. They're very, they're almost on the opposite ends of women's fiction. The first one, Julie is just for you uh, you're probably exhausted at night so you don't need any help getting to sleep but um there's a very cute book out called the royal we have you heard about this book no lee and i
0: haven't Tell
1: well, me. what's clever about it is that it's a reimagining of um the kate and williams story but imagine if kate was an american girl
0: don't we all i know
1: so it's a super clever concept and it's co-written by two women i'm usually not a big fan of the whole co-writing thing but these are the women talking
0: about we're doing a book together liam
1: (laughs) no that's true never mind novels novels this is our
0: second book together you're not Uh, a fan of this novels you're just telling us now yeah i'm not really a big fan
1: of this uh i protesting her own book uh so um So about these two women have written a bunch of books together. They also started the website. I want to make sure I say it correctly. Um, fugly that 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 website your
0: time with that yes yes.
1: yeah so uh heather cox and jessica morgan but it's um it's kind of a ya it fits in that or young adults a young contemporary adult category but if you enjoy the royals and if you think it would be fun to read about this kind of fictitious royal family um but based very much on the current royal family in that situation and then you throw in the fact that um you know the girlfriend is an american in uh, from the Midwest whose father made their fortune, um, creating what is called the Coucherator. It's a couch with the refrigerator in it. <laughs> so it's funny. So I, that was delightful. I think Jenny actually from our Facebook page recommended that. And I saw that. So I picked it up on my Kindle and I ripped through it and it was fun. Now on the other end of the women's fiction, um, uh, spectrum is Dietland a book by sorry Walker that, that sounds, has been
0: sounds horrible, but go ahead. Well, What's, you know,
1: it's kind of, um, it takes the idea of sort of a, you know, feel good story about a, a girl who's been overweight her whole life and is trying to change her life and completely flips it on its ear and makes it sort of a feminist revenge story. So,
0: okay. So I would say, I'm in, Liam. yeah,
1: mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think, you know, if you took some women's studies classes in college and have sort of fallen off the bandwagon of your outrage and you want to get back on in terms of exploitation of women in the media and body shaming and things like that this is the novel for you because it has a lot of sort of familiar tropes from normal women's fiction but in the middle of it like it takes a right-hand turn and all of a sudden it's like feminist terrorists out there taking re- <laughs> taking revenge on people who exploit women so i will say this the language is rough in that book. Okay? okay. So it has, you know, like a cupcake on the cover with a, like an explosive cupcake on the cover. Uh, but it is. It is adult language in that book. And I know some some people who listen to Satellite Sisters do not read books with adult language or adult themes. And it definitely does that. Um, but, you know, if you and your college-age daughter want to read this together and talk about it, I think that would also be a good summer reading project. But I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I found the story very compelling and the main character very compelling. And just, you know, there aren't a lot of times when you read women's fiction, you think, well, that there's some good themes in there. Like, it's a, it's a controversial book to read for your book club if you're looking for a pick and you have a book club that's kind of game to get into something juicy and in discussion so that's dietland by Sari walker and i will put both of those on the website and if you're looking for book recommendations we talk about please go to satellitesisters.com when we do shows we do the show notes and we usually do post you know if we talked about a book we'll post a link to that book and then you can always use the search feature uh we usually tag it books or book recommendations so there you go so two Me books and for that's you. That's
0: really the yin and yang of reading. It really those, is. It is. It, is. it is completely. Do you recommend reading those two together? No, whatever. The of those two? I read okay.
1: Dietland and then I had the Royal Wee on my Kindle. It was kind of a palate cleanser. Now I'm reading a couple of books that will come out in six months. Some advanced reading, or six weeks. I'm reading some arcs. So yeah, I thought it was just, you know, whatever you want. Whatever you want to do. You can. You don't have, they're not related in any way. I just happened okay. to read two books that were very much the opposite. So there you go. Okay,
0: Leon. I know you wanted to talk about a uh, an article you read a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh, okay, sports... right. Yeah. We're going to that.
1: All right. I want yeah. to mention this because I know that we have a lot of people in the audience who are sports uh, sports moms, sports moms and dads, and so I saw this headline in um, Sports Illustrated on the front page of the magazine that said um, "High School Athletes and Heroin Addiction." And I I was like, what? Yeah. I had that same feeling, Julie. I was like- hmm, you know, the startling connection between high school athletes and heroin addiction. And so this is a sports illustrated special report by John Wertheim and Ken Rodriguez. They spent seven months researching the connection between athletes and heroin. And here's what happens, Julian. When they lay it out in the article, it's pretty obvious to see how it happens. You know, most people become addicted to heroin because they start on prescription pain medication right? That is for 80% of people who end up using heroin. They started with, you know, prescribed medicine, like an Mm oxycondone. And what happens in sports? What happens to high school athletes? They get injured.
0: There's pressure
1: to get back on the field quickly. You know, in some sports like football and hockey and lacrosse, there's kind of a play with pain mentality that, you know, is supported by coaches and parents and, school administrators. So these high school kids are getting incredibly powerful drugs. Uh, They're going back onto the field maybe too soon. They're being encouraged to play with pain. The stakes seem very high for them. And for some of these athletes, they begin to spiral into, you know, prescription pain medication addiction, but that's very expensive. So then they're looking for the same sort of high but much cheaper. So it's $30, for instance, to buy, you know, a, an oxycodone hit on the street. But it's 5 bucks for heroin. Jeez. So these... I know. The really? That's, he, the, that's, that's the pricing? That's I have, I have the no pricing. Okay. Yeah. So, uh it's, it's kind of shocking, but it sort of makes sense. Now it's hard to find actual numbers for how many, you know, the, this, uh, how many high school athletes this affects, but they are definitely seeing hot spots w- because kids are dying from heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. And we know we've seen plenty of reports in the paper that heroin addiction is way up, that death rates for heroin addiction are way up. Like it's back with a vengeance. And you know, the study they're looking at a 2013 national study, 11% of high school kids will use Oxy or Vicodin for non-medical purposes Jeez. when they're in high school. And, and then it just becomes, uh, it kind of spirals out of control. Um, athletes are two times... A greater odds of being prescribed these kind of painkillers and four times a greater odds of medically misusing these painkillers um, compared to males who don't participate wow. in competitive sports so I just wanted to alert parents all again we'll put a link on the website mm-hmm. to this article because there's one one case i mean they 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 profile is th- super sad cases of great high school that, right. ba- you know, baseball players, you know, obviously once they start taking heroin, they're no longer in competition for, you know, a baseball right. scholarship, right. but just how quickly that road goes down. They were the star athletes their senior year. And by 22, they're dead of a heroin addiction. Oh. And it's just, and you know, the opiate addiction, I believe is the hardest addiction to kick. Mm-hmm. And what's extraordinary when you read the article is how many times the athletes say, you know, we were, you know, tweaked a knee or tweaked a shoulder and the doctor will hand him a prescription for oxy and say, oh, this is the good stuff. It's like, it's a joke.
0: Yeah. And
1: there just doesn't seem to be any awareness on the part of the medical community or coaches or, you know, athletic administrators, like how quickly this can spin out of control. So I just
0: wanted. I'm glad you're mentioning it because it's just the high stakes of high school, you know, sports, you know, everybody wants to get a scholarship you know, there's so much, you know, parent uh, pressure and involvement that, maybe they do know this can spiral out of control but they you know they ignore that um, ignore the dangers of prescription ju- drugs i think it's all part of it and yeah. you know and they
1: make the point in the article it cuts across you know all socioeconomic classes You have, you know, the 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 wealthy lacrosse players from Connecticut are just as likely to be addicted as, you know, the poor baseball players from some scrub town in Arizona. Like they they profile, you know, three or four athletes that unfortunately died from heroin addiction. And it cuts across all all kinds of parenting, all kinds of socioeconomic realms. So I just thought it was interesting. It's you know, I was thinking back on my son's high school career. He wasn't ever prescribed that. He didn't, he had injuries, but nothing, nothing that required a Vicodin. But I know when I got that Vicodin for the dental, the dental stuff I had, I would take a half maybe and then just throw it away. I mean... (laughs) You don't even want it in the house. Right. You don't want that stuff in the house. You shouldn't
0: have it in the house, Leanne. Yeah, be afraid. No.
1: So it's just a cautionary tale. I think it's something for all parents who have kids involved in sports to be aware of. And so I'll put a link at SatelliteSisters.com to that article.
0: Thank you, Leanne. Okay. that's that's why it's probably so maddening, distressing, disturbing that Joaquin El Chapo Guzman... (laughs) the bad guy, billionaire, narco trafficker, guess what? He, he is, he's taunting all the former captors, you know, everyone both on the Mexican side and the U.S. side by, he posted a picture of himself in the cockpit of a plane, enjoying a beer. So, you know, he is the one, he is the bad guy billionaire that escaped from the Mexican prison, you know, and, and this, but the social media aspect of this, you know, uh, escape is what to me is so fascinating. So it's not enough that he got out, Leon, that he, you know, that he spent all that money to get out. It's that he now feels like he wants to stick it to his captors and he wants to announce to the world that he's back by posting a picture that he's, uh, he's in the you know, drinking beer and enjoying himself and back with his, uh, beauty queen wife. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, even before he escaped, there were a number of sort of heads up that something was going on. The U.S. had heard, you know, through back channels that they thought an escape was in, in the works. Um, but then um, Guzman's son put out on Twitter, Leon, that uh, he, he had the tweet, the general will soon be back. Can you believe that? Before he actually escaped. And of course, it's a spectacular escape. You know, uh, he built, you know, he built or, you know, with his money, with his uh, with his narco trafficking money, he built a mile long tunnel. He had a motorcycle on rails uh, with lighting and ventilation to, you know, to build this tunnel so that he he could escape. And there's apparently a very popular post um, in Mexico that is a picture of a thick wad of dollar bills all rolled up. With the caption, the tunnel through which El Chapo escaped. How about that? (laughs) I mean, it is, it's just, it's, you know, it's, I mean, this, you know, his capture, the fact that he was imprisoned was what the president of Mexico based his whole, you know, he based everything in his government on that we, we are going to address you know, the seriousness of, you know, of the drug trafficking, that we are not going to be susceptible to corruption. And I'm sure there were threats within the prison to let make the guards look the other way. But it's, it's not unlike the prison escape in Clinton, New York, where you just know that people must have known this was going on. You know, it's not like you can build that kind of tunnel, you know, have that kind of escape um, without um, other people being involved.
1: Isn't there a detail, too, that he could actually stand up in the tunnel, like that oh, that's yeah. how big it was? Because, yes. Yeah, because he's
0: 5'9". He was eight, a luxuriously you know? large—he yes, wasn't crawling on that tunnel. Yeah, had ventilation and lighting. He's El Chapo, Lee, <laughs> and he didn't—you know, he didn't—he wanted to walk his way or ride the little motorcycle thing uh, to freedom. And there are reports that once he once he made it through the tunnel, the mile-long tunnel, there was a helicopter waiting to take him away. Yeah. But the fact that he's taunting the yeah. uh the authorities is uh is so maddening. So um you know. Keep your eye out for him, Julie. <laughs> keep keep monitoring the situation. Yeah, but I mean I think for all prisons you you should be checking for tunnels, don't oh, yeah. you think, I, <laughs> I mean think you should. I mean it's not it really wasn't that complicated of a plan. I mean, even though he had lighting and ventilation, it's it's the basic tunneling out of Dick- prison. <laughs> Right. It seems to be the only plan they got,
1: you know, other yeah. than going out with the laundry. That's the right. other one, too, right? They got the tunnel or the laundry? Yeah. I I know it's not funny, but it's just hard to relate. So it's just clearly a guy with so much money and so much power and is so corrupt. And so, you know, people will roll over and do whatever he wants them to do. So.
0: Because that, you know, because he threatens them as well. I mean, it's not, I mean, some of it is corruption, but some of it is life threatening and that, you know, I mean, he is, he is a bad guy and I hope they can get him back, but I don't know where they're going to put him. So that was my first crime report that I saw this morning. And then the other one that is, I just, I'm puzzled by it, Leanne. There was a headline today regarding this case, a California case. This was of a couple, Denise Hoskins and her boyfriend, Aaron Quinn. And they claim that intruders broke into their house and tied up Aaron, the boyfriend, and took Denise Hoskins. And that there was, this was a kidnapping and they required a ransom of $8,500 and um, and then, you know, sort of as a surprise, Denise shows up three days later in Huntington Beach. But the part that is, uh, you know, that it gets more curious is the Vallejo um, Police Department that were investigating this kidnapping didn't really believe it actually went on. They would they're calling it kind of the gone girl hoax that there was according to the police there was no evidence to support the claim that a kidnapping actually occurred, okay? And so these people were discredited, they were humiliated, you know, they were sort of vilified because, you know, they sort of made up this, this wild story. Well, this morning, the FBI are involved and they have announced that they have an arrest warrant out for someone that they believe Had You know, is doing this is like breaking into houses, kidnapping, you know, tying people up, kidnapping them. And so now all of us. So uh, Denise Hotskins and Aaron Quinn with their uh, appeared with their attorneys to say, you know, hey, now you should believe me that, you know, you should believe us that this actually did happen. And so there may be a weird story. It is, Lynn. It's, you know, it's... (laughs) I kind of saw the headlines but I was cleaning
1: the kitchen this morning. I wasn't paying any attention. I didn't know this is what this was about.
0: Yes, yes. And and the person that that they're looking for, of course, you know, there's intrigue involved there, but he's described as a Harvard Law School graduate student. Uh, So, you know, he is... It's sort of an unusual background to be someone involved in home eva- home invasions and kidnapping. You would think. Yeah. I don't know. So there's more. More is going to come out of this story. So I, but it's you know I think we bring you crime stories here at Satellite Sisters <laughs> that we just don't know what to make of. We don't know who to believe. Do we believe the Vallejo police are the what are the FBI onto something? You know, uh, you know, I feel very badly for, you know, Denise and Aaron, if this actually happened. But what if what if it didn't happen? Leanne? I feel I bad know. that
1: you'd be compared to Gone Girl because that was such an implausible plot. It was just yeah. so ridiculous.
0: <laughs> well, that's, I mean, this I mean, this has that same sort of yeah. characteristics. Implausible. $8,500 <laughs> for a ransom? Really, I mean, you're right. You at least round it up to 10000 ten ten. yeah. yeah, you go for or at ten. least nine thousand. Okay, you can, you know, I, I mean, I understand. You might, you might. Well, I, I don't know, Liam. or and and she ended up in her home, back in a you know hometown of Huntington Beach. Uh, it's just all very strange and puzzling. All but right, we'll, uh, we'll you've get
1: that. You're going to be busy following El Chapo and Gone Girl. I know, Liam. okay. stay on it and watching the kids all right speaking of that i know we have to get to pull dark and handsome we're gonna take a quick break um and then when we return uh episode four very very satisfying we're the satellite sisters stay with us We're back, you're listening to the Satellite Sisters. I'm Leanne Dolan here with my sister Julie Dolan, and it is time for our weekly recap of PBS's Pole Dark on Masterpiece, Pole, Dark and Handsome. Julie, this episode was top notch, wasn't it?
0: Alain, I have in capital letters uh, in my notes, satisfying episode. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Okay. It it is one that you're going to want to watch again and savor.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's just review quickly. Okay, this episode had horrendous medical care in it. It had Pygmalion Week at the Mm. cottage. Mm -hmm. It it had holiday entertaining and funeral etiquette. Yes. It, It had a wifey talent show. And yes. it had just a lot of people staring out into the sea, didn't it?
0: <laughs> yes. I, in fact, I, I was surprised because I, I was surprised that uh, the nautical aspect of this show. Yeah. Yeah. yes and then it had
1: you know for you lads out there that have been manscaping if you've been waxing your chest i just want to turn your attention to episode four of Dark* because i believe the overhead shots of ross Dark in bed with his chest hair will convince you to stop waxing your chest yes. don't you think
0: julie I just... so right here and right now Leah, yeah never again I,
1: I'm telling you boys, just take a look and then, then rethink the waxing. That's all I want to say. Um, all right, Julia, let's start from the very beginning. A lot of the show overall was, uh, it was just the response both by the public, the town, the business associates, and also by Demelza and Ross about like, why did he marry Demelza? Demelza was asking the question. There was clear there were times when Ross was asking the question. Mm -hmm. She was getting used to her new role. The family was getting used to the role. The town was getting used to the new role. And in the beginning of the show, we had a back and forth, back and forth. And we hear people's reactions uh, to the wedding. And poor Demelza was called everything from a scullery maid to a serving wench to a kitchen maid to a mistress almighty to a slut. like, poor Demelza.
0: I know. But, Leanne, she got more beautiful in every single scene that she's in. So- Not so poor for Demelza. I think she knew that she had this inner power. But I have to start off at the beginning, Leanne, with the breakout performances of of Mr. and Mrs. Drunk. That's what you have named them. (laughs) They had their heads up off the table and were... Delivering lines again about Demelza and why she should not be uh, Ross's wife, but I, I, it started strong with their breakout performances. Good point, Julie. Excellent point. All right,
1: so we've moved from this scene. We do get it's clear that Ross is quite smitten with her,
0: at least when it comes to going to bed. <laughs> yes, Demelza. indeed. Ian. A best line for me for Ross is when he turns to Demelza and says, "Suppose I have other plans for you." <laughs> I would enjoy any planning exercise with Ross Poldark land. I'm pretty sure about that. That's right. She is like slamming the
1: bread to the table, but he's got other plans for Demelza. And And I, I, yes, just planning exercises
0: with Ross Poldark, put it on your schedule for the week.
1: In the meantime, out in the real world, Things are going south with the mine. Uh, Ross trying to revive the mine of his father. Uh, They're looking for copper. All they're getting is iron. They're running out of money. Public support is turning away in terms of funding, is turning away from Ross because of his controversial marriage to the scullery maid. And uh, so that's looking bad. And then the women of the town spend most of the episode staring at us (laughs) to see... You know, Leanne, when they were
0: staring at the beginning, I was like, what are they looking at? What are they waiting for? Uh, and again, with those accents, I couldn't really make out what they expected to arrive. Was it pirate ships? Was, I, I didn't know what, Leanne. It so. was
1: Pilchers, Julie. It was Pilchers. And uh, if you're wondering what that was, as I was, and you Googled it, first of all, Rosamond Pilcher came up. And she's a lovely actress. Speaking of Gone Girl. Uh, but that's not who they were waiting for. Pilchers are another word for sardines. Mm -hmm. And apparently in Cornwall, Julie, it was a major industry from 1750 to 1880 was the uh, catching and canning of sardines. I did some research.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Liam. Can I say in that scene when uh, I hope I'm not giving it away for everybody, the boats do come in with the uh, sardines. Yeah. The fishmongering scene where they're just hurling and throwing uh, smelly sardines off the boat and again, they look, they're all just so happy. They're so enjoying happy. them. They look as happy as the miners, Land. I mean, these are the two <laughs> worst jobs, mining and fishmongering. Uh, but everyone in Cornwell seems to really enjoy it.
1: <laughs> and it's a bonding experience for Ross and for Demelza, but also for Demelza and Ross and the rest of the town. After yes. after she's getting in there and getting the fish and Ross couldn't be happier, there's a lot of people saying, thank you, ma'am, thank you, ma'am, calling her, you know, by the new honorific that she has been uh, given, thanks to being Ross's wife now, as opposed to the kitchen maid. So, mm-hmm. um, so the peasants are happy, even though there's no uh, copper yet in the mine. There are sardines, and that makes <laughs> that makes them very happy. Okay. In the meantime, the real family, Ross's rest of the Poldark family, not so happy. They're no. quite astonished by the fact that he has married the kitchen maid. Uh, there is no joy in Mudville over there. That is, that, first of all, being part
0: of that family looks terrible. Doesn't it, Julie? Worse than the Windsors, land. I, I mean, they just... <laughs> I mean, the only, you know, I mean, Verity is the only true shining light. I have to say, though, Elizabeth, I I do like Elizabeth. Yes. You know, she's... She's, you know, she has many fine qualities. I understand why Ross uh, likes her so much. So, but yeah, that's a deadly family over there. You well, know, it just looks
1: like a terrible thing to be high-born and in this terrible family. Yeah, you know, yeah. certainly uh, Francis, the cousin of Ross, um, he, he's, we established last week, he's a loser. And over the course of the episode, uh, he just becomes a nasty loser. The uncle... Um, <laughs> The uncle, after a good long session of bloodletting, which is—that's yes. a—I'm—I'm I'm glad that medical practice has gone by the wayside. That
0: would not be good for you, Liam. No, can't.
1: I couldn't even watch the scene. I mean, mm. it does make you think. Like that was not that long ago. That was only two hundred years ago that they thought draining sick people of their blood was a good idea. How <laughs> stupid is that?
0: I don't understand. Um, well, what does the uncle do right after a nice session of bloodletting? He tries to jump up on his horse, right?
1: I mean, he, first of all, there is, he was never getting on that horse, Julie. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, the horse was way too high. The horse was a I, I was just horse. looking at where the stirrups were, where his legs were. Uh, I just, it was not going to happen. But he's done, he's now, this is his second like dying scene, Leon, where, he, where he's collapsed uh, as part of the, of, of the show. So that seems to be what he's doing. You know, the Mr. and Mrs. Drunk are going to keep their heads down on the table, and the uncle is going to continue to collapse in every uh, episode. And he calls Ross to him and he
1: says in this dying scene, and I, right. I didn't think he was actually going to die, but he said, Ross, basically my son is a loser and yeah. uh, Francis is a loser. You have to look out for our family name. And then he up and dies, doesn't he? <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Well, I kind of could. I okay. mean, he hadn't been well, Liam. Yeah. Not one bit. He was, so he was apoplectic. He was apoplectic. And then he yeah. died. Uh, so, um... So it looks like this could either be good or bad for Ross and Demel. So it could be a fresh start for the Paul Dark family. Maybe Francis, now that his berating father is gone, can finally make peace with you know his legacy and can get his act together and stop being such a loser and going to prostitutes. And to work that all out, he does what everyone in Cornwall does: he stares out at the sea. Right. <laughs> he just. So the women are still sail, staring. Uh, the loser uncle bre- cousin is still staring out at the sea. But in the meantime, Verity's got to get out of there, and she yeah. heads over uh, to Demelza's cottage. And after one very tense scene where they're what is that called stitching? What is what <laughs> were <process> they doing? <laughs>
0: I'm not. I'm not even going to answer that, Liam. <laughs> what just, is that called stitching? It just looks so boring to be a. A woman then. To sit in many people find that just highly satisfying, enjoying, it's uh, enjoyable, it's a work of art, Leanne. Uh, it can be very calming and rea- relaxing. <laughs> Perhaps you should take up cross stitch, Leanne, or embroidery. Okay, I don't think so, but okay.
1: but Verity just puts it out there that she doesn't care who Ross is married, except that you know she lo- he clearly likes her, and we have to hear from Demelza, oh, he may like me, but he doesn't love me, yeah. and he'll. Never love me. We don't have that kind of relationship. And then Pygmalion camp starts. I mean, that's fun. Verity goes goes to town making a lady out of Demelza. Yeah. So there's dancing and there's napkin folding and then Mm -hmm. there's shopping. Mm -hmm.
0: It's excellent. Way to go! Yes, I mean everybody needs a friend like uh, Verity. I mean she's she has that unfortunate nose, but she is a delightful person. And she does confide in
1: Demelza, you know that she's lost the love of her life, and yeah. you know it's terrible to live without love, and that she's a lucky person. It's a yeah. very touching scene, and it's nice yeah. to see the two of them bond. So mm-hmm. when there's this turnaround at Christmas time, uh, Francis invites Ross and Demelza to um, to the house for Christmas Eve. Oof,
0: I was like, "Don't go holidays with the relatives." You know that's a bad idea, Liam. You
1: know. know it. <laughs> the only thing that's exciting is that we see that Demelza has a new dress that's arrived. So we know that's going to be a big plot point and yes. that's exciting, but Christmas Eve, it's just supposed to be, you know, the five of them. Uh, and, uh, and then the world's worst house guests show up. I mean, what, <laughs> if, first of all, who arrives unannounced on Christmas Eve? Yeah. What? Yeah. What, you know, yeah. what kind of, what kind of peasant does that? And it turns out it's the evil banker, George. And I think it was that his wife who was doing I, yes, all the she, mouth and off. She, yes, yeah.
0: yes. So she's just awful. And she works, she, you know, she works hard at being awful too. And she has just honed in on Demelza and she just starts picking at Demelza, you know, throughout the evening, Leon. But Demelza walks in, in that red dress and jaws drop.
1: Not the least of which, I mean, I thought Ross was just going to expose his chest hair right there. I (laughs) thought he was
0: just going to... That Thank the linen shirt was going to just fall off or, yes. go, or burst into fa- flames. One of the two, <laughs> Leon. I'm yeah. not sure. No, it was a triumphant moment for, um, for Demelza. Um, and again, uh, Ver- Verity was very nice. And this is what all good friends should do is just don't lace, uh, lace your friends up too tightly <laughs> in the dress, right? Right. I, would, I hope I could count on you, Leon, if I had to lace up, if I had to be laced up that you wouldn't do it too tightly. I would not do it too okay. tightly, Julie. I, I, I might be surprised if you were with child at this point. <laughs> Okay. Okay, smarty pants. Okay. okay. All right. But yes, she did look magnificent. She had just a, a, a subtle, lovely little necklace on. Uh, She looked like she belonged at that table, Liam. She looked better than anyone. She really looked better than Elizabeth, you know?
1: And with her charming answers and her plain speech, she managed to charm everyone at the table, except George's evil wife who kept picking away and picking away at her, but she handled everything beautifully. And then after dinner in, and then after dinner, she had to go throw up because we know that she is with child. She hasn't told Ross yet. Uh, she's only told Verity. She looks terrible. She has to come downstairs and immediately be part of the, that horrific, you know, British tradition of like musicals after dinner. I mean,
0: <laughs> what is that? I mean, what would you pick, Lyanna? A harp, the piano? Yeah. It's, it's all tough, you know. Uh, competitive cross
1: stitching. I don't. I just. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> And the people, it's just, you know, some amusement after dinner. So we have, of course, Elizabeth's playing the harp and it's beautiful. And then we have to hear a song from Demelza and she kills it, man. She lays it down like Adele. She sings this heartbreaking song about having her heart plucked by love or her finger finger pricked. I don't know what the lyrics of that song were, Julie,
0: but everyone in the room falls in love with her, right? Yes. I mean, Leon, you and I must learn to sing. That's, yeah. all, that's what I wrote down. Okay. <laughs> Because that was it. That was, uh, she just, that was, the tide has turned. They're in that gorgeous red dress, um, singing that song. Everyone, everyone realized that she was truly a beautiful person.
1: Right. And then, uh, and all ends on really a happy note, actually. As they leave the house, it seems like the family is reunited. Even Francis has sort of redeemed himself. And it's no wonder that Demelza is exhausted, Julie. Ross keeps
0: making her walk all over Cornwall. <laughs> Well, I think in her condition it's better than galloping. Those are the two, those are her two options of transportation. Yeah, he could get a carriage. He could get a carriage. I mean, my gosh, the
1: poor thing. All right. So, uh and they're walking past the mine and the bell starts to ring and there's panic and wouldn't you know it, Julie, they've struck copper. So, we're one week away from stopping the pay for all of the happy miners. <laughs> And their are Pilcher loving wives and, uh, and then they strike, they strike copper
0: and everything looks good. Lynn, uh, c- coming from the land of wildcatters, there is nothing more thrilling than hearing the bell ring, <laughs> that, having that Jed Clampett moment when, when you really, when you strike peg. So uh, I could, I could appreciate that. Okay. Nice. Nice Texas touch there. Thank you, Julie. Uh, <laughs>
1: So then Ross and Demelza go home to celebrate and she decides that this is the moment to tell him that he's with child and well, it slays him, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Lian, man, yeah, that was good. If that you was... want to know how to react to your wife telling you she's pregnant, I just want you to get re- fast forward to the end of that episode because it's all right there. A lesson yeah. in how to react. And then he says, I am your humble servant and I, I love you. Oh, it was the
0: best. I know. <laughs> So this is cha- episode four, save it for a rainy day. You're homesick from work. This is, this is the episode to just play over and over and over again.
1: It is. It might replace Pride and Prejudice as my sort of go-to. I've got nothing to do at five in the afternoon. I might just do that. It's a good one. Okay. All it's right. a good one. It's a yes. good one. But it makes, it makes me wonder where are we going from here? Everything I, looks so good. What I will know. our dramatic storylines be? What will go I,
0: wrong? Well, things we'll go will go wrong, Leanne. You know that. That this happiness is fleeting. <laughs> uh, you know, things are going to happen. The fish won't come in. No. The mine, something will happen in the mine. And I, there is more to happen for Demelza and Elizabeth. You know, that's okay. going to be. I hope Ross' chest hair stays intact though. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: hope there's not a tragic mine accident that
0: forces him to shave his oh. chest hair. I think that I hope that's not the case. I will keep that thought in my heart, Liam. <laughs> okay. I am your
1: humble servant, Julie. I am your humble servant. We are your humble servants. We're the Satellite Sisters. If you want to find out more about Satellite Sisters, please visit satellitesisters.com. You can find us on Twitter at sat sisters. Same at Instagram at sat sisters. And we're on Facebook, both as an official page and a group. And we'd love to have you join in the conversation. Just ask us and we'll approve you because uh, that's the kind of satellite sisters we are. All right, Julie, get back to your campers. And I will. Don't, and don't forget, call your satellite sisters sister.